What a privilege to be a part of a church that sings so richly. I mean, regardless of where you are in life or what you came into church feeling this morning or whether you have uh, chosen to follow Christ or not, you cannot deny the fact that there is something resonating deep in the souls of people who are here on a morning like this that they just can't keep inside because it is too good to hold in. Amen? So thank you for that. Last week, we left our lovers, if you remember, in a really hard place. Um, We don't know the details of their situation, uh, but it has undeniably created a tension um, that was clearly evident. As intended, the poetry, which as we have been talking about all along, it it has stirred our emotions. It kind of left us with a, a bit of concern for this couple that we've been following, Will it be springtime in their marriage again? How will they resolve the conflict that they've encountered? How will they close the gap that was created and and established this emotional distance between them? What does it look like to restore their loving affection? And I just have to believe that as you heard those words last week, that there were many of you who were asking those very same questions for your own marriage as well. Or maybe you felt the burden of being isolated and alone like the woman spoke about in the song. And I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, it's easy to kind of get stuck in that place where you're overwhelmed by difficult circumstances, uh, struck by the, the, the challenge of being in a hard place, and it's difficult to actually see what is good and right and true. Instead, we kind of become hyper-focused on what's wrong. We see it in our own lives when, when we're confronted with the reality of our, of our own sinful depravity. But we can also become critical of what we see in the, other li- in the other people's lives as well in some kind of twisted way. It almost makes us feel better to find someone who's worse off than we are. Whether that's someone we know, a complete stranger, or even our own spouse. But I want you to know right up front, that is not what we see in the song this morning. Instead, we're going to see a wife who is persistently pursuing reconciliation. We learned last week she's actually enlisted the help of others to come alongside her. And they asked her as we closed out that section, if we were to find him, what would we expect to see? Can you describe your husband to us? And and I don't know if you felt this way, but as I kind of worked through the passage this morning, I thought, that's kind of a setup. It's kind of a setup because if they are in fact in a hard place, what a perfect opportunity for her to complain about all the things that her husband has done wrong. Pinning the blame on him as the source of all their problems. But as we will see, that's not what she did. Instead, she willfully chooses to see the good. She turned from what is wrong to believe in what is right. 
And I think this is an incredibly powerful reminder of how God looks at us as well. Because we often expect him (laughs) to highlight all the ways that we fall short. We believe he's more focused on our failures and our flaws. But when given the chance, God only sees what is good. And the reason is, is because he chooses to look through the lens of the cross, and that changes everything. So before we look at God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for what you have already done to minister to our souls through the songs that we sang, to be reminded of gospel truths, to grab our attention and draw us close to what you want to speak to us this morning through your word. And so I would just ask, on behalf of all of us, myself included, that whatever barriers or inhibitors that would block that reception of your truth, that you would just, in this moment, clear a path, make a way for the truth that we need to hear to sink deep into our heart in such a way that it transforms our lives, it restores our marriages, it reconciles our friendships, and it deepens the unity of who we are as a family of God here this morning. Really, what we're asking for is a miracle. But we ask believing that you still do miracles. So would you do that in our hearts and lives this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. Right, if you would, turn to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 10. I'd love for you to read along with me. And it says there in verse 10, My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates uh, and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk. And reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are like rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So again, last week, the daughters of Jerusalem asked the question, how would you describe your husband? And beginning here in verse 10 is her answer. But remember, we have to keep the context in mind because she is apparently responding out of a painful separation. Their, their marriage appears to be in a, in a difficult place. And so instead of focusing on his flaws, she highlights his strengths. Right up front, she says, he's one in a million. More specifically, she says, he is outstanding among 10,000. In other words, if you were to gather up a small city's worth of the world's finest men, I would choose my husband Every single time. You see, God 
has joined us together with an inseparable bond is what she's communicated. So for better or for worse, <laughs> I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She goes on and describes him. She says he is radiant and ruddy. He is a hardworking kind of man's man. His skin is toned from being exposed to the sun, but he's built with a radiant character that comes from an inner strength. So he's dazzling both inside and out. And then she begins to describe his appearance. She starts with this head of gold, pure gold, and this black curly hair, which actually is an interesting way to begin because it's almost like she's describing a deity, like one of the Greek gods that you see in mythology, covered in gold, embezzled with jewels, which does not mean that she is worshiping his appearance. But what I do believe it does mean is that she is using poetic language to exalt her husband who is a man who has no equal in her eyes. You see, their covenant commitment has reshaped the way she sees this man. Their one flesh relationship has set him apart in her eyes. She's not comparing him to other men. In fact, she's saying very clearly, he has no comparison in my eyes. And not because he's perfect, but because they are one. She's made very clear, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She continues to to focus on his face and describes his eyes as innocent as doves. His cheeks are red. If you look at a a balsam plant, they have these beautiful bright red flowers. But she could also be describing his beard. It was common for Jewish men to have a beard during that time. And it had the sweet smell of, of herbs. She says that his lips drip with myrrh. They're like lilies that are bright and radiant in bloom. His hands are like rods of gold. They're covered with emerald rings. The barrel stone is like an emerald colored jewel. His abs are chiseled. I can understand, right? (laughs) Or not. They're inlaid with sapphire. His legs are like pillars of gold. He stands tall like the trees of Lebanon. His whole appearance And her eyes is strong and majestic. And and I think if we're honest, as we sit there and listen to a description like that, we think, good grief, this is like no man I've ever known. This is like perfection, right? Almost unapproachable. Kind of inaccessible in his appearance. But then, in verse 16, she says, his mouth is full of sweetness. He's wholly desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. At the core of their marriage relationship is a loving friendship. It's a safe place to be fully known and fully loved. This is how the woman is describing 
her husband, who's more than just her husband. This is her best friend. At the core of their marriage relationship is a loving friendship. And I think sometimes in our marriages, we, we forget that. We, meant, we implement all these strategies to improve our marriage relationship, but in reality, we just need to learn how to be friends again. Seeking to have meaningful conversation with a, a genuine interest in the other person instead of focusing on how we want our spouse to better meet our needs. We need to have a friendship as the core of our marriage relationship. Look how it continues there in chapter 6, verse 1. This is the um, daughters of Jerusalem. They're responding in verse 1 and says, Where has your husband gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? She says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of balsam, to pasture his flock in the garden and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine, he who pastures his flock among the lilies. The daughters of Jerusalem now respond to this description that she has given of her husband. And essentially they ask, where do you think we can find him? Where did you see him last? And in response, she goes back to the garden where he gathers lilies. This is the place that we've been before already where her love comes to life. So despite the difficulties that they face, she still envisions the renewal of their love. She doesn't describe the worst case scenario. She doesn't go down this pathway of all the things that could be wrong. Instead, she sets her heart on the best possible outcome. She describes the place where their love comes to life. So please don't miss what the woman has chosen to do here. Instead of highlighting her husband's flaws, she speaks of his strengths. She chooses to see the good instead of being critical of his mistakes. Her heart is steadfast in the pursuit of reconciliation. And let me just say, reconciliation is a whole lot more likely when you take this approach. Because it's a willful decision to see what is good even when things are bad. And let me just say, too, that this is true not only in a marriage relationship, it's true in a friendship. It's true in a church family. A critical spirit rarely leads to reconciliation. But when we choose to see the good, it very often will. Look at how he continues in verse 4. You are as beautiful, this is the husband now responding, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have confused me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Gilead. 
your teeth like a flock of ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her, saying, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as a full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? It's kind of interesting because all of a sudden we're in this search process for the husband who's gone missing and now all of a sudden he appears (laughs) and he speaks. It's as if the affirmation of his wife has stirred his affection. She wins him through her kindness not her criticism. So, so now he describes what he sees in her. And he begins by comparing her to two glorious cities, Tirzah and Jerusalem. The first one is more foreign to us. In fact, it very likely was a Canaanite city that happened to be renowned for its lush beauty. In my mind, it's probably a lot like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The other one, though, we're much more familiar with. Jerusalem is what the psalmist calls the perfection of beauty. And and this is how the husband sees his wife as well. She's a sight to behold, and no one else compares. She says that she's as awesome as an army with banners, which is like describing a beauty that is both bold and fierce. It's intimidating, even to the point that he says in verse 5, turn your eyes from me. Her love is so strong, it, it can be disorienting at times. So he looks away from her eyes, and he describes her wavy curls of hair. Uh, the poetry is beautiful. It's like a, a flock of goats that just make their way down Mount Gilead. He highlights her teeth, which he must be really impressed with because this is the second time he's brought this up, right? They're white, perfectly positioned. Not one of them is missing. He then makes a comparison in verse 8 with three classes of women. They, they kind of started the highest order and then kind of descending order, queens and then concubines And then maidens. But he says, no matter who they are and what number they are, my wife outshines them all. Much like the wife did earlier in the song, now the husband says that you're the only one for me. She's unique, incomparable. Even the queens, the concubines, and the maidens, they say, sing her praises as well. So when I hear that, I know that there must be more to this woman than just her sheer beauty. Because beauty alone only creates jealousy. But she has a character that elicits admiration. She's approachable to other people. And her conduct is pure. 
And as we think about the, the way that the, the husband has described her, I want us to notice, men, how his humility has opened the door to their reconciliation. Because I think all too often, we as men can pridefully hold our ground. Being more concerned about being right than being reconciled. So instead of responding with kindness, we can speak caustic words of criticism. We isolate ourselves, can become emotionally distant from our wife, or to be more blunt, we pout. We, we want to take our toys and go play in another sandbox. But that separation only deepens our dissatisfaction. So not only are we unhappy in our marriage, if we're honest with ourselves, we're just unhappy with life. And make no mistake, hear me clearly when I say we can suffocate our own soul when we have a critical spirit. So the song helps us see the benefit of choosing a different path believing in what our marriage could be and instead of lamenting in what it's not. Showing how encouragement, kindness can actually breathe life back into a relationship. I want to read verse 10 again. It says, who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with many banners. This final verse kind of takes it to a, a whole nother level, but it seems to be a rhetorical question being asked here because as an obvious answer, it's his wife. And we don't know who may be asking this question. Perhaps it's the daughters of Jerusalem. The author has routinely used them to highlight something important that he wants us to hear. And here they seem to be highlighting the, the heart of the husband towards his wife. They actually repeat one of his descriptions when he described her as an awesome army with banners. But before they go to that place, they move actually outside of the earthly realm. Their description is literally out of this world. They say, like the beauty of a sunrise, this woman becomes more radiant with time. We live in West Texas. We know what this means. I mean, you can sit there on a morning when the sun is coming up, and it starts to light up the sky, and the longer you sit there, the more breathtakingly beautiful it becomes. That's what they're saying here. Like a full moon, her purity, that character illuminates the darkness. It shines forth like the sun. So who she is is clearly more than skin deep. It's her character that shines the brightest. The purity of her conduct is what stirs her husband's affection. And this is actually what Peter speaks to very clearly in the New Testament. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observed your chaste and respectful behavior. 
Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Personally, I believe that that's what we see happening in the song. It was her chaste and respectful behavior that had the greatest influence on her husband. And I want us to think about that for just a minute. Because the only way that happens is if her marriage is not the place where she finds her ultimate fulfillment. Her marriage can't be the place where she finds her true value and worth. Instead, those have to be found outside of her marriage, ultimately in a relationship that she has with God. In fact, I'll just say this. Your love cannot flourish inside of marriage until you find fulfillment outside of your marriage. God did not design the marriage or any relationship for that matter to bear that responsibility. And so until we are satisfied, completely satisfied in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we will not be happy in marriage or any other relationship for that matter. Personally, when I read the song, I don't feel like the husband and wife as they speak these words of affirmation to each other, I don't feel like they're somehow trying to win the affection of the other person. In other words, they're not trying to stir their emotions with poetic language, hoping to persuade their affection. I think these are words that are spoken from a heart that has already been won because they found their fulfillment in God. And now they can show kindness with no strings attached. Their value and worth was not determined by how the other person responds. It's already been determined by who they are in the eyes of God. You see, I think that's when our words actually have the biggest impact on other people. When we speak them without expecting something in return. When we share our heart without ulterior motives, which is how I believe we should see and receive the words of Jesus as well. Because when he speaks his heart for us, he does not include a long list of demands. He doesn't criticize our sinful behavior and expect us to get our act together. He doesn't expect us to, to earn his favor through our good behavior. And in fact, if that's the message that you've heard, I just want you to know very clearly that is not the good news of the gospel. In fact, that is a prison from which only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set you free. Because when God looks at us, he does not see our failures and flaws. When we are in Christ, he chooses to view our life through the lens of the cross. And when he looks through that lens, he sees no sin at all. That's why 
Quoting God, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And that's why he can look at us through the lens of the cross and say, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And listen to this, he speaks those words even when you're at your worst. That's why we read in Zephaniah chapter three, one of my favorite passages, it says, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he, listen to this, he takes great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice. (laughs) Just imagine this scene. The God of the universe, the creator, the savior of the world, rejoices over you with singing. That's what God sees when he looks at you through the lens of the cross. And and if that's what we believe, it will stir our heart to worship. Because when I think about what we're reading in the song and we hear this expression of mutual love and affection for one another, again, I don't believe these words are spoken to win the other one's heart. I believe these words are spoken from a heart that is already been one. And I think that's why it sounds so worshipful at times. But that's what loving adoration looks like. It's praise that overflows from a heart that is already full. So we're going to close with a song this morning like we typically do, but let me reframe it for you in light of what we just talked about. I want you to think and and consider deliberately the words that you are singing this morning. And, And I want you to let your praise flow out of a heart that is already full. Sing with a heart that's not trying to win God's favor. Sing with a heart that has already been won. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for looking at us through the lens of the cross. You see our sins no more. As far as the east is from the west. You delight in us to such a degree you cannot hold it in and you rejoice with singing. Lord, may that fill our hearts so that as we respond, our hearts overflow with praise and adoration for who you are and what you've accomplished in our life. Lord, we love you. (laughs) And very clearly, I hope this morning we can see how much you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Did you all uh, catch the song of Solomon in that song? For I am his and he is mine, bought by the precious blood of Christ. (laughs) Looking up a passage I want you to hear this morning. You've heard me say before, um, when I practice physical therapy, I would tell my patients recovering from surgery, it's not fair how fast you lose it compared to how long it takes to gain it. Talking about their physical strength. 
The same thing is true in relationships. It's not fair how fast you can lose relational equity compared to how quickly you can lose it with an unkind word. And so let me encourage you this week to consider the words of Paul when he wrote to the Ephesians. Listen to the tenderness here. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so my encouragement to you this week is that we embrace those words. And that we're very intentionally aware of the words that we're speaking. And if you have to, count them. (laughs) So that for every 20 words of, for every one piece of criticism, there's like 20 words of encouragement. So that it really overbalances the conversations that you have to say. Because instead of highlighting some things that's wrong, you want to speak to what is good. That's true in your marriage It's true in your friendships. It's true in how we relate to each other in the body of Christ as well. So let's be committed this week to live that out faithfully. Kind-hearted, tender to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being together. Thank you for the reminder of your great love who sees no flaws. (laughs) Because you have, your forgiveness is complete. Father, help us to live in that reality in such a way that it transforms how we relate to other people. (laughs) That we relate, have an overflow of forgiveness that extends kindness and tenderness towards other people. Lord, help us to live that out faithfully this week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.